everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Smattering, where we ask the important questions about investing. I am Jason Hall, joined, of course, by the voice of the people, Jeff Santoro. Hey, Jeff. Hey, I'm excited. We have two guests, our first double guest show. Last week, we had the opportunity to appear on the Power Hour for the Chit Chat Money podcast, and we have the co-hosts of that podcast here today with us, Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer. How are you doing, guys? Doing well. Yeah, that was, that was a fun episode, and I got a feeling this one will be too. I agree. Great flow on that one. I think uh, you know we could run, run it back on your guys' show. Well, we're happy you guys are here. Yeah, very much so. I think a good place to start. There's there's a good chance that if you're a listener to our podcast, you're if you're not a regular listener to to Ryan and Brett, you're at least peripherally familiar with Chit Chat Money. But for those of you that don't, we wanted to start off with that. We'll talk a little bit about your backgrounds, and we'll talk about the podcast and what else you're doing. Who wants to go first? I can. Yeah, I can talk about the backgrounds, and that's Ryan, everybody. Yeah, this is Ryan Henderson. It's actually kind of a funny story, I guess. So Brett and I both went to the same college, university, went to Washington State University, and that's basically where we met. And I was ended up being a finance student. Brett was mechanical engineer, correct? Correct. But our paths crossed at, we, we were both kickers for the football team. And if, if you've ever watched a football practice, you'll, you'll notice on the side that the kickers don't do a whole lot that they're usually, there's usually a couple of people on the side that are just talking. Right. And so that was us. And, and it ended up kind of being, is that where you guys like first made your stock prognostications together for the first time? <laughs> the bad Probably. ones. Yes. Yeah. 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 Love it. In the 2017 era, when that what was that the least volatile year ever, the easiest year in market history, where you could buy something and everything went up about 20. percent so. I, I had a friend that was a it's a trader, and he mostly trades options, and he said that was the worst year he's ever had because there were no premiums because there was no volatility. Perfect. That was that was yeah great great for us because we didn't know what we were doing, and <laughs> he just bought some random stock, and most likely it went up. And the, the, I think that was also the year Bitcoin first like took off, right? Wasn't that twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen? Yeah, the first bubble. Yeah, big. It was huge in the locker room, and that's what we kind of knew. Like, whoa, this is this might be, you know, some people that were not interested in any of this stuff. There's about twenty people talking to us about about Bitcoin and say it's the future, and they have not. Let's say they weren't very. They were giving financial ver- advice. <laughs> they weren't very versed in finance. They might have just been a receiver that was about to go to the NFL next year. So. Yeah. But they, it was kind of like the genesis because it was, everyone was kind of talking about it, especially right. young people. And so it was, it kind of got us interested and Brett, I, I'm, I'm thankful Brett was on the team because he actually had some, you know, he'd read some of the like kind of starter books. And so he knew generally like some, some useful investing principles. And so since we had tons of time, we basically talked about it on the side. Eventually we were like, you know, we should, I think it was my sophomore year, your senior year. And, and we basically said, let's try to start a podcast. And it was pretty, it was horrendous kind of at the start. And, and the audio sucked. The, I cringed every time I listened back to it. Um, and, and no one really listened to it. Our moms gave us like a couple voluntary listens, but that was really, that was really it. And, and we, the good thing was we actually enjoyed it. And so because yeah. we enjoyed it, we were able to keep doing it each week, despite no one listening. And it was 
kind of a forum for us to actually get better. It like taught us to research these businesses, taught us to kind of learn and, and, and kind of give ourselves a place to like discuss ideas. Um, and so I, I think that that helped us improve. And then I'd say kind of 2020 after I had interned for the Motley Fool and Brett had hiked from Mexico to Canada, we like reconvened and the podcast actually got good and we got like an office and like people started to tune in. It was also kind of the height of everyone had gotten their stimulus checks and wanted to listen to wanted somewhere to put it. So they were listening. Yeah. For a lot of people, there wasn't anything else you could do. Bars were still closed. Sporting events were just starting to get back open. Lots of, lots of free money floating around and people with time on their hands. Yeah. That's kind of when it got serious and, and I guess turned into more of like a real effort slash business. So that was, I guess, am I missing anything there, Brett? I don't think so. And then we just tried to get better year by year, day by day. We do three shows a week, different formats. Go listen to Jeff and Jason on the Investing Power Hour. And we do, basically, we want to publicize our research similar to your guys' show-ish, but ours is more as we talked about. You guys actually do research. We do. We try to do, it's not extremely structured. I'd say go listen to the show to check it out, but we'll do what we call a not so deep dive, which is just trying to be ironic. And each week we cover a sh- individual stock, go through the business model, history, governance, who owns the company, financials, and then kind of what we think about it, what we think their future prospects could be, go through bull and bear cases, and then kind of conclude with, all right, are we more interested in this company? And we think any listener along with us can kind of outsource a little bit of their research and get up to speed on a company a little bit quicker if they listen to one of our episodes. Plus, from our perspective, we put it out into the world and then we get feedback from other people on the internet and saying, okay, no, you guys got this wrong. Actually, no, this was like smart. You guys, I didn't think of that before. And we can kind of communicate with people that way. So that's that's how we do it. Plus, we interview people on individual companies as well, kind of any other analysts we know like yourselves on the internet. It's one of the, one of the things that I like about your, your, your format is that you do do those kind of three different things. The the power hour, of course, which is more talking about timely events. You do it live on YouTube typically, and then you push it out over the weekend for people that are looking to consume it more as a podcast. And then you interview really smart people. And sometimes me talking about those individual companies. And then you have that, the, the, the deep dives that you do, I, I love the way you phrase them, but you guys are really disciplined about having these, these formats that I think serve listeners really well that are looking for specific things. And you talked about outsourcing of your, of, uh, you know, kind of out the, the not so deep dives away for people to outsource their, their research. I love that. And that's one of the things that we talk about here as far as like the investor toolbox. So we're all so busy with life, particularly because I think most of the people that listen to our show like they have a full-time job and they don't like we try to help people figure out like the mindset things as much as the, like the hardcore investing stuff. And you guys are really good at like the, the investing pieces when it comes to actually equity analysis and that sort of thing. And I think that's a real value add that you guys, you guys bring that. And I would like to, how did you, how did you arrive? How did you arrive at that as a thing that you thought would be valuable, not just for as a, as a podcast, but also as something that you guys really wanted to do every week. So I think a bit of it was just stumbling into it because we tried a few different formats at the start. And then what we realized was, because we tried to set it up as 
very similar to maybe how a sports show would go where you have your own, you know, us talking about something within the market, something news, something like that, and then interview someone. But when we were younger and or not when we were younger, but when the show was, you know, just getting out the ground, we had no profiles really on Twitter or anywhere online. So it's hard to get, you know, meet people. We hadn't really built up any friends within the industry yet. It was very hard to get interviews. So we thought, okay, what's something we can do on our own and doesn't require interviewing people and I think we called it the fundamental analysis show at the start, but then we switched it to not so deep dive just because we thought it had a better ring to it. And that's well, how we, we started actually, and people are, go ahead, Ryan. Originally it was the deep dive, but I mean, Brett kind of discussed the approach there for a second where it's kind of typically, unless it's a business we've looked at before, it's our first time kind of turning over a rock, kind of doing our first level of diligence, if you want to call it that. And so people were like, we would talk about a business that someone had owned for five or 10 years and they go, you know, this is typically it's of like, if we're bearish on something that they own or something like that, they'd be like, these guys aren't, this isn't a deep dive. And you so, don't get it. You don't know what you're talking about kind of thing. Kind yeah. of yeah. to like mock it. We just converted it to the not so deep dive. When everybody um, uses deep dive. So I think it's kind of, it's kind of clever using not so deep dive. It's a little more original. That's what we were hoping as well. Cause everyone uses that. And the key, I think what we wanted also with the individual stocks is, I don't know if we just stumbled upon this too, or we explicitly thought this either way, it helps us out is each week, you know, we cover a different company say, what did we do last week? Oh, we did this week. We're doing dating app companies. So we did spark networks, which is a tiny one that we did bumble grinder. The next week we're doing match group. When someone searches that company, there might only be like say 10, or 100 people a year that search that company name or that ticker within to say Spotify, YouTube, or iTunes. But when they do, hopefully our show will pop up. And that's kind of a what we found is a good organic way to grow the show when we were going from the standing start. And I think it's hard to do a, po- a postmortem because we don't really have many good analytics. Podcasts have, his, you know, as we all know, very hard analytics compared to say something like YouTube or, or posting on social media. So we, it's hard to know exactly what worked for us and how we could grow and whether maybe it was just the stock market bubble in 2020, 2021. But I do think it was that searchability where people could find a show five, six months later. And that, and that's what really helped us. So we just keep doing one each week and building the catalog out from here. So hopefully it gets better, you know, the other, each, each time we upload one. The other thing that Brett kind of mentioned there was, like it's more if you're thinking about starting your own podcast the interview format is a big part of it is having like regular programming so having a show every tuesday morning or something like that it doesn't matter which day you pick just pick something and stick to it and be consistent and so it was hard to do that with interviews because for one we weren't big enough that like a lot of people would just turn us down there were a lot of people that said yes and we're really grateful for those that did but a lot of people would turn us down and so it made it really difficult to do so we kind of just had to find something sustainable to do and researching stocks in our own way ended up kind of i think being the most sticky format so i was one of those people that found your podcast during the pandemic cuz that's when i sort of got in into investing and sort of obsessed with it so it's been kind of fun like hearing you talk through the history and how you've changed it. One thing I've wondered listening for a while now is that has it been hard or, or challenging in any way to like kind of publicly figure out the kinds of investors you are and make mistakes on the air <laughs> and and sort of like 
because I'm sure you're changing as investors. Like I'm sure the way you invested, like you said earlier, like in 2017 in the in the locker room when you were you know with on the football team and learning stuff is probably very different than what it is now, you know, years later. So has it? But you're doing that sort of publicly. Like I made all my mistakes privately before I started a podcast. So I'm just curious, like how Not that's true. been for you guys doing that out in the open. <laughs> the I don't know. I, I think we try to make it limited where. At least recently, we've done a new format on the Not So Deep Dives where for our limited partnership that we run, we do a one episode per month that's kind of a cover. We call it the Arch Capital episode. It's kind of a, a marketing sort, you know, part of it is to be marketing for our fund, but we also want it to be good for the listeners where we'll cover something within the fund or maybe a reason why we passed on a company, why we're keeping it on the watch list, you know, down those lines. And yeah, at that point, we'll talk about something we own, but typically... And we'll, we're not our fund structure and, you know, all the, what do they call it? Compliance stuff doesn't keep us from talking about individual stocks that we own, but we typically, and we won't not talk about a stock that we own, but usually we'll either, I don't want to say refrain from it, but we, we think it is smart to not, because we've seen a lot of people without naming any names. We all know that there's tons of people out there like this that got in trouble during the bubble for, I don't want to say everyone was pumping up the stuff that they owned, but sometimes down that line where you say like, okay, I'm buying this, you should buy it too. We always try to make a full disclosure. Like, Hey, we own this company right now. We might not own it tomorrow. We might own it six months from now. We might not own it six months from now. We're going to go through everything we like, but we're also going to go through everything we dislike. We're going to try to say, look, we're not attached to these companies. And I think publicly saying that, or at least if not publicly saying it on the, on the podcast to each other and then having people hear that and knowing that they're going to hear that, it kind of ties us to saying, okay, we own these things, but we cannot get attached. And when I say things, I mean stocks. We can't get attached to them emotionally because we know those biases are going to try to creep up on us. Ryan, I don't know if you had anything to add there. I, well, I think something that honestly really helped and you guys do it all the time. I, I think you do it knowingly, but something that really helped kind of, I think people help people resonate with us was self deprecating humor throughout the show, like treating it like we are still learning as opposed to treating it like we're an expert on something, which is honestly, it gets kind of a little bit tougher when we now manage some money for people because you, I, I think the inclination when you, run some sort of a fund is you have to be all knowing on the stocks you own and that kind of thing. And so, and, and I mean, we're going to learn lessons along the way. And, and I think being open about that and kind of treating it as public research where we're trying to get feedback has really helped people resonate with us. And yeah, and but maybe there is, has yeah, allowed us to avoid anywhere posting well. anything online and especially within the investing, even if it's not online within the investing world, you have to have a thick skin. So luckily, I think honestly, as, and I know we already talked about both of us being kickers as well. If you're a kicker and even neither of us played in college, we we're, we we're, um, you know, third and fourth string or second and third string. But if you're a kicker, you have to have tough skin. And you have to realize that you're going to make memory. mistakes and you have to have a short memory and you have to have understanding of probabilities because even the best kickers ever like Justin Tucker are going to only make nine out of 10 of their kicks and they're going to miss one out of 10. That seems 
super easy. So I think having that as a base when we were younger was really helpful because we had experienced a lot of situations as a kicker where you have a lot of pressure, you have a lot of things go wrong, and then you just have to move forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, there are a few, there are a few things that can be more humbling than investing in being something like a kicker. And being a kicker is kind of like being the umpire or the referee that generally nobody knows who the hell you are until you do one thing wrong. And then everybody knows your name and it's not a very, very good thing. No, it, it, you can build, you have to build up a thick skin quickly. So let's talk about this. I think this is a good transit. So let's, you know, from the time you started to chat money, you know, talking about the salad days of, of the stimulus money and you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a stock that was going to double in the next six months. It was just kind of a crazy time. And it was a great time to be starting a podcast versus, oh, say six months ago when we started this podcast. But it's also been a very different time to be an, an investor where now you, it's far more, this is a stock picker's market, right? And you have to have honed a skill set to identify really the best companies and not just okay companies and pay the, the right price and be willing to hold through volatility and all that sort of thing. So I'm really curious, thinking beyond the podcast, thinking about yourselves as investors, specifically, how have you evolved over the past few years? Yeah, I can, I can kind of take that. And I, Brett's answer might differ. Um, but first of all, I just, we are, yeah, we are not the exact same investors. I think we do have differing styles. We do have a lot of similarities though. And I would just say it's kind of, even though it doesn't feel like it now, it's kind of a blessing or I should say we are really fortunate to have had the last three years be our sort of formal introduction into investing because I think if we started in 2010 or somewhere around there, I probably wouldn't care a whole lot about valuation. That wouldn't be sort of a, a big part of our approach. You'd be learning um, to care. Yeah, that's exactly. But with everything that's happened over the last three years, it feels like we've gotten sort of a full cycle education in mm -hmm. a fraction of the time that it typically takes someone else. Also, it happens sort of at a time when, candidly, we don't have like dependents or something like where we're, we're, we're not like. Lower. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like it could have been, you know, in our fifties or like right before retirement or something, it would have affected us a lot more. But I. I I want to be careful not to take away the wrong lessons over the last kind of three years, but for better or worse, we have, or at least I have become way more, I think, valuation conscious. And I, I'm, I'm very, and even though we, we kind of thought we were at the start, I think we really did not have an, a strong enough appreciation for base rates. And, and we assumed that a lot of these companies that were growing at pretty astounding rates, like, we estimated that they could grow at a higher rate than they really could have. And I'm sure a lot of people did. That's why, you know, a lot of these stocks have come down, but I I'd say over the, that's probably the biggest lesson is that we're much more, I think price discipline. And as a part of that, it's because we are pretty conservative in our assumptions. Now, would you kind of characterize that the same, Brett? Yeah. And I think it becomes, it comes from a little bit of trying to just learn from how a market cycle goes. And the second is just frustration because our own, I don't want to say our only losers, but really the vast majority of any losers we've had over the past few years has been ones where we go, you know, this, we love this business, but it's trading at approximately 
20 times gross profit. I don't know. I think it can grow 20% through the next five years, but five years from now, we'll be good. We'll be good. And then or we're like, yeah, let's. If, if it's a part of your initial thesis that you can average down, it's probably not a prudent think about investment. Point. Yeah. 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 We, we, so we, the simple thing is just saying, look, we're going to identify a lot of those businesses. And this is something we've somewhat formally, I mean, it's only been the past few months we're trying to really build up this watch list is look at a company. And when you say, hey, I really like this business model, I really like this business quality, a few companies that come to mind that we've kind of are going to put on this watch list would be something like Adyen, Airbnb, Coupon, something like that, where we don't have to buy it today. We can keep it on the watch list. We can say, okay, this is the t- around the price or around the multiple that we're going to buy it at. But valuation does matter, at least to us, and we're gonna we're not gonna overpay just because we want to think we need we have some cash on the sidelines and we want to get over antsy. And then I think the second thing that we really learned over the past year is trying, and this is something I think is going to take multiple years for us to really, and no one can really master it, but it's analyzing a management team, analyzing whether they are aligned with what you want as a shareholder and if it's not not expecting them to change to you you're we're not activists we can't change the narrative of what's going on so typically a management team is going to be the same as they were you can't expect them to do something different magically and particularly if their incentives are aligned in a different direction yes and 2020 2021 early 2022 i think was a perfect time to be studying businesses, be studying proxy statements, be studying management teams and saying, oh, wow, these guys totally, maybe not intentionally lied. Now, there's a lot of people that did intentionally lie in 2021 and 2022, but they could have been misleading. They could have paid themselves huge bonuses for these weird metrics that didn't actually matter. And I think that was a good lesson for us to learn where we made a couple of mistakes, Not not nearly as bad as I think as the valuation ones, which I think caught a lot of people, you know, anyone that wasn't a deep value person got caught up in that in 2020, 2021. Um, it still is something that we want to focus on more than we w- than we had when we were younger. And we think it's important because you want a management team that's aligned with outside shareholders. That doesn't mean only focusing on shareholders, but focusing on what's best for that particular business to build shareholder and stakeholder value over the long term. So you guys mentioned that you have a lot of similarities as investors, but that you also differ in some ways. So I'm just curious, like how you would characterize where your differences lie. And then when it comes to making like what I'm assuming is a joint decision, right? With the fund you guys run, like how do you reconcile those differences? Well, I think it's what it's, you disagree it's, about. And will you have an argument here for us on our show? <laughs> yeah, we don't. We, we try not to do arguments. We try to make it debates. I think it's really hard to be introspective. So I think maybe it's, it's easier for us to say what, what I think the other person doesn't, you know, I don't know. Right. Right. Ryan. Cause it's really hard to tell what I, I'm sure you have some things that I, I differ from you on. I don't know if you want to go first on that. Honestly, we, we are fairly similar. <clears throat> maybe just like domain expertise in some ways is a difference for us. Like, okay. I love to have, some sort of tangible experience with the businesses we buy Mm, something where it's like, I have interfaced with the product in some way. Like I know the customer experience wholeheartedly. I think that's less of a point of emphasis for Brett. 
I agree. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a big thing, but it's a good balance where I might get as someone who studied kind of in the, in the STEM area, think sometimes, or maybe have a little bit overconfidence in studying something that might be technologically complex, possibly something like semiconductors or anything, anything within that realm. And we have a good balance where I'm like, Hey Ryan, you get, maybe you have to step out of your comfort zone here and buy some, we, we, there might be an opportunity to buy something that is a great opportunity, but we, we're not going to be able to buy it at the, the local store and test it and test the product. And on the other hand, Ryan could be like, look, no, 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 this is a tough market. This is hyper competitive. This is so there's disruption coming every year. We might want to sit this one out. So I think that's a big deal. And in terms of process, it's like, I guess our formal process is that one of us, if we're, you know, hung up on an idea, we really like something, it's maybe a new business that's not in the fund already. We would pitch it to one another. Uh, and then, like Brett said, come up, unless it's like buy now, it's typically come up with a price where we think it's attractive. And having that sort of watch list to revisit when the price gets there makes it, I think, an easier decision when the day comes. Yeah. And there's some other, you know, important intricacies we can go in if you guys want to hit on the process part. But one important thing is we also have to have both agree on a sell decision because we want to have resistance to selling because we know some of the biggest mistakes people have made. I was just listening to Einhorn today selling he saying that he used to own 3% of Apple back when, or like 2% of Apple back when Steve Jobs just came back before they released the iPod. And then they sold when it went and it like had a 40% bump. So they could have had, they he could be the best fund manager ever if he just would have held on to Apple. And we will, and look, he's also very, very good regardless of that. But he said that was his biggest mistake. I think a lot of people say their biggest mistake is selling position, and we don't want to do that as well because we, we felt it. I think we've all felt it. When something is up 30%, 40% or something has a bad quarter and you think you're wrong, your instinct is to go is to, to have an, to make an action, and we want to make it you know resistant because there's going to be one day where I wake up and I'm like, dude, we have to sell this now. We have to sell this. And then Ryan's going to be like, no, no, we have to both agree. I don't think this is the right time. Sit on it. Talk to me tomorrow. And then also it could be vice versa. I mean, we've had it's, both those situations happen. It's annoying at times to have to convince someone else, but it also makes you do deeper work because if you have to convince them, you, you really have to be, it, it requires a little more depth of, of a knowledge when it comes to making a decision. You know, this is, I think this is really compelling because, and Jeff and I, we've, we've talked about this before, how it's pretty common for, for people that are in the cohort that'll listen to our kind of shows they're not necessarily surrounded by a lot of people in their in their personal lives who are as interested in investing in stock picking as they are. And it becomes this solo venture that, frankly, it's so easy to lose perspective. And it's so hard to, Brett, I believe you're the one that said talking about trying to trying to learn the right lessons. Like it's so hard without having somebody else. And kind of to put a wrapper around this part of the conversation, Ryan, it's, it sounds like you guys, like you're very philosophically aligned with, with as investors. Um, but where are you different or your kind of your circle of competencies and also a little bit of kind of the things that you prioritize that are in nuanced ways. And I think that that is so healthy and that is so useful. And I just want to use this as a chance to talk about that toolbox again for people listening to try to find somebody that you can interact with in that way that can help you learn the right lessons, avoid the mistakes 
um, that are the ones that are really devastating, which are usually selling based and not buying based. That's that's great. Jeff, you look like you had something to add here. No, I what I was thinking as you guys were talking through that is the things that I've picked up, well, from listening today, but also just listening to your podcast before, like I've really loved the idea of I've always had the concept of watch list in my head, but really having it be more about a company that I would love to buy, just not at the price right now, but but keep it there so that when it when we do hit these, like, you know, who would have, you know, maybe some people did, but, you know, we didn't really see 2022 coming the way it did, right, with, with this long, prolonged bear market. But I'm thinking about myself, like if I had had some companies I bought at really high valuations in 2020 and 2021, if I, instead of doing that, if I had them on a watch list with like a price or a price range, I would have gotten them at much better, much better prices over the past year. But I agree with what Jason said too. Like it, it's so helpful to have someone, you know, whether it's a formal kind of process like you guys have because of the fund or just the way that I'm, Jason and I are able to talk through things on the podcast and then, you know, on text message and things like that. Just, just to check yourself because you will, like you said, Brett, you'll wake up one day and be like, I have to do this thing right now. And it's good to have someone to be like, well, hold on, you know, at least think of this other side of it. I usually try to do that for Jason. And by the time I'm halfway through my argument, he's told me he's already made his decision. And <laughs> I can verify the button. I can so. verify. Yeah. I, we try. And I think it, as an individual, it might seem like a hellscape sometimes, but the best place, just post on Twitter and say like i think you'll get an opinion yeah you'll get some you'll, you'll get some opinions others say i'm thinking of selling this because of blank 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 you'll get an opinion and if you're anyone that does feel like hey look i love investing but i don't have anyone to talk about it with again go on twitter go on Substack, start writing i mean the, the, really the internet's the best place to do that yeah another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, so let's let's move into some more fun questions just kind of about stocks and and you know a little bit more in the wheelhouse of what you guys typically do on your show. One of the things that I've I like to ask people who come on the show and it's sort of a generic question but I think it's interesting and you guys can answer this any way you want. It can be personal, it can be the fund, but best stock pick, worst stock pick. What's the what's the decision you made that turned out to be the best at least so far and maybe one that was a real disaster? I mean, technically, I think it's like in college one time we punted on this one, like just a like call option way out of the money, and it just like turned out to be great. But like, I I don't recommend that. And if we were doing that today, we wouldn't do it. But that's it was too kinda, wonky. That's too wonky. We were yeah. gambling, so it doesn't. Yeah. It, we avoid that. But I would say, for me personally, and this is kind of ironic given the conversation we had last week, I think Square was actually the best investment that I made just like uh, COVID. Well, uh, basically like kind of, uh, I think I tripled down or something like that. March, like March, COVID. March. Yeah. April, early April, COVID 2020. And then it was like kind of just like good fortune that I ended up needing to like liquidate my personal portfolio to like invest in the uh, fund and, the, the podcast we to get start, things up and running. 
Yeah, our startup cost, yeah. And ended up selling Square at kind of a fortunate time as well. So it ended up being the best investment, but I think it's funny just given that we look at it now and like, I, I, I it would take a lot for me to own that now, just given sort of what, my thoughts on management. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the best one. I think it's got to be Square 2 just because we were both we were both kind of had similar timing on that and we just kind of got lucky and you know, we kind of saw the cash app numbers and who knows maybe maybe they weren't legit now, but the, that gross profit growth and either way their financials were growing insane and it seemed like there was a dislocation in March 2020 we ended up being right worst investment. I think it's Spotify. Let's see money like just nominally. Oh yeah, yeah. Because we we weighted that way too heavily at a just to be frank, we weighted it way too heavily at a, a premium valuation, and yeah, which is that or go. I think it's an important lesson because I would say out of all the businesses we've looked at in our five years of investing or maybe more, it's probably the business we know the most intimately because we interface with the podcasting side. Maybe you guys, I don't know what you guys distribute on, but we, we, we see the publishing side of things and we thought, oh, there's all this opportunity, yada, yada, yada. And because we knew the business so well, I think we conflated it with return potential and we're, and we're kind of looking past the valuation, which is like such a, some of the best investments we've made were ones where we probably didn't know the business all that well, like Sprouts Farmers Market was a good investment for us, you know. Oh, that was my best investment, I think personally. But go ahead. Yeah, like, I can't even remember. But <laughs> did we know the grocery business as well as we knew Spotify? No, but like just completely different return or results. It's just don't knowledge doesn't make it any more. So it doesn't change the outcome. Some, this is the sunk cost fallacy, right? And yeah. and it works with yeah. time as much as it does. With, with money, where you have an idea that you invest so much of your time into really learning really well, eventually you can talk yourself into investing in that idea, even if the outcome of all of that labor is no, right? Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. You see that all yeah, the time. Yeah. You see it all the time. Yeah. So here's one thing uh, to go along with that is we were, for the majority of the KPIs with Spotify, we were right about what happened, but- the price was too high. And yeah, it might still work out over the next, say, five to seven years, but it wasn't right then. And it was a, too, it was a big mistake to load up on something as a heavy position sizing at that valuation because it's a stock, not just a business. The difference, the difference between a great business and a great investment, they're not always the same thing. But I just, I want to put some numbers on that on that, that the block one, the square one, just for some context, from March 23rd, 2020, the bottom, through basically any time from early January of 2021 through like the fall of 2021, you know, for nine months or so, if you had a sold, you would have realized between 400 and 600%, right? That's yeah. pretty good money if you can, if you can, if you can find it. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, the thing a lot that, of luck. I think. Yeah, that <laughs> a lot of luck. Yeah. But hey, we we're right. At, we, you know, we we're right at the business, but a lot of that was. Multiple. But that's the right. I mean, that's the right lesson to learn is that you did. You know what? You you. It took skill to identify it as in March of 2023 when the world's on fire and people are literally dying, and say, okay, this is an overreaction, and we think this is a deep value opportunity, and we're going to make money. The luck part is not that it that it went beyond just recovering to prior levels. And that 
all the STEMI money and all the other weirdness that continued to happen, let it be a six bagger or a seven bagger for you. Jeff? But or go ahead, Jeff. No, I was just gonna say it is luck, but it's also the skill of identifying it too. And and also knowing when's the right time to to say, okay, whatever it was, four or five, six hundred percent is enough right now. But the thing that I was thinking as you were going through that is like there's the lesson you learned with the valuation piece, but then there's also the lesson you learn about your own biases. And I feel like when we talk about learning lessons with investing, it's easy to focus on the nuts and bolts of investing lessons. Like, oh, I've learned more about how to value a company. I've learned more about evaluating management. I've learned more about focusing on these KPIs. But there's also the, I've learned more about what I'm the mistakes I'm prone to make or the biases I'm prone to have, or like you probably won't make the mistake of conflating personal experience with the product and the investment again, because like that's something you learned in this process. So I think both of those things are, it, it's like the mindset learning, but then also like the, the investing learning. I think that's important. I think a big thing with block too, we mentioned the management stuff earlier is now people may you know disagree with us and we, we kind of have a cons- opinion now that the the management team at square was not for us i guess and they made a few things in our minds that were definite mistakes and it's really really difficult especially when you made 500 percent returns in a short time period and you think man this could be a big winner this could be you know my apple this could be something huge for me this could be my amazon knowing when to sell is so important that when we're looking at a company, we want, and it's so hard to find them. And yeah, you're going to be wrong sometimes, but finding the management team that doesn't force your hand and start making what are, I'll say in hindsight, clearly dumb decisions, specifically with block that convince a lot of, you know, convince people, Hey, you know, I got to get out of this thing. You have to realize your gains. You have to find another place to deploy the capital. If you're in a business that's high quality, and you find that management team that has high integrity, then you never have to sell them. It's just, it's the easiest game ever. I mean, what is, what's the best example with this? Munger with Costco, right? He found Costco. He found it at, a, at the right price and he's held it through periods of 40 times earnings for a long time when everyone realized how great the business model was, but he's not selling because that culture there is so, you know, ethical, focused on the right things and not buying a music streaming company to, diversify and have your hip hop friend as join the board. Right. The thesis never changed for, exactly. for Costco. And that's because right? of the culture. Yeah. And it, right. And that's an important, I mean, we, just to plug your show and also the one we did together last week, last week, like we did talk about that a little bit on that, about, you know, knowing why you own a company, knowing what the thesis is so that if some, if they do something that's not aligned with that thesis, you at least know the reason you owned it and can evaluate like using t- the purchase of title as an example, the acquisition of title. If you really know why you own Square or Block, you can then look at that and say, okay, this is obviously a shift in a different direction to some degree. Is it worth staying for it or is it worth selling? You know, so like, but you, you can't make that decision if you don't know it. All right. So we did an episode on our podcast a couple of weeks ago or last week, actually, it was last week's episode called Running Toward Fires. And it was basically in light of the banking crisis, we all just kind of went through. We wanted to have a conversation about, you know, sometimes if you know what you're doing and you're careful about it, you should actually run toward the thing that everyone's running away from. So I was curious if there's any any sectors or stocks or parts of the market right now that people are sort of, you know, running away from that you think are compelling and worth running toward. 
Well, I don't know if it's you got like, a good one, Ryan. I don't know yeah. if it's anything specific. We own a lot of tech, and people seem to hate that right now. Uh, I would also. Say, I don't know what tech is, though. I honestly yeah, don't know what tech, tech is. Yeah, it's the worst. It's the worst descriptor. I in the don't world. know what yeah, it, I, I, investor I, versus a value investor. The worst descriptors in in the world. It just means you're arbitrarily I, putting yeah. yourself in some bucket because it feels comfortable, and you're not thinking holistically about how to make money. Yeah, and I rant. totally agree with that. Yeah. But Ryan, any well, any, any ideas? I guess something we've been doing is so just full disclosure, we own Activision Blizzard, and that's one where obviously there it, it's. Basically, Are you playing Uncle Warren's arbitrage game? It's in some ways, yeah, I guess, but it's like it's not. It's I think the spreads, whether it's because interest rates have risen and you can get like four or five percent without taking risk. Or maybe it's just that like there's more regulatory scrutiny now. The spreads are wider, so I guess having wider spreads makes me think it's it's a fire most people are avoiding. But if it's a business for us that we're comfortable owning in the situation where it breaks, like the merger doesn't go through, that's sort of a fire, I guess you will, worth examining in our opinion. Yeah, and another one for me, yeah, I totally agree with that. And specifically with merger arbitrage we're definitely not merger arbitrage investors but we'll invest in one if we would still buy it at the same price i think that's kind of the the only reason we'd hop in on one of those and i think the one the fire i'm really interested in and again look at our portfolio there's a few companies in there with that which we publish on our website once a month it's consumer internet companies i'll try to i know people call those tech but i like to separate it into consumer internet where a lot of these have over the last year, they've had major foreign exchange headwinds, which, look, I don't know if that's going to continue, but it seems unlikely that the dollar is going to go on a bull run like that every year for the forever. And two, they came out of a bubble period, so advertising's been down or went through a trough. A few other things. And again, you know, there's just the pandemic really benefited a lot of these companies. And I think people are turning away because revenue decelled for a few quarters and if you still believe in the long-term competitive advantages of those businesses, whatever it is, it could be in any industry or any subsector, excuse me, of consumer internet companies. I think there's a lot of opportunity there because a lot of people have, I mean, those are some of the worst performing stocks, maybe besides software as a service or maybe besides biotech. So you're talking about like the Shopify's booking.com's basically companies that have a website and they sell stuff to consumers on those websites. Is that what you mean? Yeah, it could be. It could be an online marketplace. It could be a social media company. It could be in music streaming. It could be in dating apps. I'm thinking of those two are examples that we own. And gaming. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, any game, video games. It could be video games. Any basically consumer internet company where I, what attracts us to those in general are there's, and not all of them, have network effects. They have high margins because the distribution is free. And when you build up a brand, it can be very, it's easy. It's those type of businesses where they have moats and um, favorable economics, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. trying to sum it up, but the, the low barriers to entry mm-hmm. with all of these really, but high barriers to success. And yes. yeah, yeah, it seems a lot of babies have gone thrown with the bathwater, at least in my opinion, within That's, that sector. Yeah. That's what I keep thinking. Like when you say consumer internet companies, what I keep thinking, he- hearing you talk through it is like all the companies that got caught up in both ends of the COVID bubble, right? The ones that had the crazy run-ups and then the ones that had the the crazy crashes. Because the reality is 
the heights that they reached and the depths that they reached are probably overblown on both ends. And there's probably, like you said, babies thrown out with the bathwater in there and and value to be found because the pendulum swung so hard in both directions. Yeah, look at Meta. We, we never owned Meta. We should have. Um, we actually, a lot of people are we actually themselves. called it unownable at the bottom. I said it's un- <laughs> so did, well. No, I so did Jeff. The uh, I, I still I think will it. never own Meta, so I'm still on that boat. But whatever. I well here here yes, it was on a. I I don't I don't like someone that's throwing money away into something. I it just doesn't make sense to me. But when you looked at it, that how cheap it was at the time and how strong Instagram and WhatsApp were. Yeah, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but that was, that was pretty darn cheap. And I think that opportunity still exists for a lot of those consumer internet companies out there that might not not just social media. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right, let's let's let's. So we're gonna wrap up the stock picking part, and then I've got a couple of bonus questions that these may be the most important questions that we can ask you guys. But this is the third most important question right here. So we've talked about a lot of things, and this this is something that we stumbled across from our mutual friend, John Rattanzi. I'm sure John, somebody that you guys know pretty well, an investor that I deeply admire. Five stocks, 10 years, what would you pick? Here's how we're going to do it before you answer. You guys are going to go back and forth on the first four, and then you have to debate for the fifth one. Brett, you go first because you've let, Brett, you're going to go first because you've let Ryan go first on every other thing. All right, I, I yeah, I did. I do that just because it gives me more time to think. My first I know one. That. That's okay, why next you go first. <laughs> next, okay, ten years. My first pick is going to be. I'm trying to think of what we we rank our stocks every two weeks. I'm gonna go match group. Okay, I'm gonna go match All group. Right. I don't know. Ryan? Ten years for me is like enough to, and I can't sell them. Like at no, a no. Oh, okay. No, nope. he's got to pick five, and you're stuck with them for ten. I'm years. I'm gonna probably pick. A bunch of things that I don't think will change, where like I just don't think the industry will change. I will go Hershey's. Okay. All right. Third, I'm gonna go. Yeah, what? I'm trying to think of it's hard to it's hard to do it all in your head. I'm gonna go eh, Amazon. I think Amazon, yeah. Hard to lose money, I think, in that right now. Okay, all right. Uh, people might right, hate, so, people yeah, might hate ahead. me for this one, but I, I think along the lines of things that won't change, I'll go Philip Morris. Ooh, Philip Morris Ooh, international, yeah, international yeah, yeah, yeah. or yeah, not yeah. Altria, Philip Morris, hey, not, not Altria, not Altria, but Philip Morris international. Hey, Altria's outperformed them the last 10 years. Well, yeah, so. because yeah. I'll just say, yeah. we don't want to have that show. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, yeah. We could do a whole show on debating the tobacco companies. So here's right, what we're going to do. I'm going to give you guys a few seconds while I'm talking here to think about it. And I want you each to be thinking about your, your, what would you pick for your fifth? And then I'm going to count to three and then you have to say it out loud. And then you get to convince one another what number five is going to be. So, all right. So here it goes. Here goes the countdown. Ready? Three, two, one. Nailed that. Oh, Home Depot. Sorry, <laughs> I wasn't synced it up. But all right. Okay, so 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 Brett, you were you. Oh, were this first. is going to be a good debate. Those yeah, are both. Yeah, Home Depot here. All right. So now that you've both heard it, are either of you prepared to go with your 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 colleague? Well, Ryan, this is I'm I'm debating you for your largest position, both professionally and individually. So I don't know. 
Nelnet. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I have to do any more convincing for you. Okay, I love Nelnet, but you brought up we did this kind of uh, exercise a while back, and he brought up a good point, which is I like Nelnet because of the capital allocation historically and, Man- and currently. Management, yeah, yeah. If if management changes, it's not. If I'm betting on a situation where it's because of management, I wouldn't necessarily call it purely a never sell because management can change. So Home Depot can be ruined by management, though, pretty easily. They could, but they've had a lot of managers. Now it's only had really one head capital allocator. Well, I guess two. two yeah. But yeah, one and a half semi co CEOs. Yeah, it's just so cheap. <laughs> I mean, it is my largest position. Yeah, I, I, I'm willing to, and I don't own Home Depot, so maybe I'll, I'll go nail that. All right, there you go, Jeff. I do agree with what you're saying, though. Like, I, I would be more willing to bet on management changing and yeah. possibly screwing up Nelnet than Home Depot in the next ten years. Yeah, I still think Just because Home- I feel like, I think I know you can mess up Home Depot, but like. You also probably couldn't if you were like halfway decent at your job. Like, whereas I feel like Nelnet's got so many moving pieces, you really have to make smart capital allocation decisions. Home Depot makes the yeah. debate, makes the but. any idiot list for me. The you know the Peter Lynch buy business that any idiot can run because eventually any any idiot will run it. Yeah, maybe 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 it is now, but in the early two thousands, I think they had a CEO they had to change because they they made the the too much expansion. I mean, we could have someone saying we're gonna just put in. Twenty billion dollars into Latin America and just light it on fire, you know. Yeah, not impossible. But I think it would take multiple like years. Less I think the, diff- I think was- the difference now yeah. is the board for for Home Depot. Mm, so it's too late. You've already picked Nelnet, so you can't even. It's too late. We've already hit the- <laughs> Nelnet. Yeah, yeah, Nelnet. But the biggest risk is is management. Yeah, you want. I feel like once you hit well, hold on, it's not like seven years, ten years. You want the least management risk you can get. Yeah, because what's the executive turnover in the United States now? Like every three years, About three. or even less. Yeah, so, over three. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so you got to bet that it's going to happen because of these revolving C suites with all these just mercenary CEOs, as we like to call them. Okay, right. you guys ready? You ready for the most important question? Sure. There's two. There's two. The first one: who who's the who's the better kicker? It's a two part. Who was the better kicker? Who is the better kicker? Two. Yeah, I'll say I know I know for a fact Ryan had a much better leg than like stronger leg than me, but I, I was more accurate. Yeah, okay. very two very different kickers, really. And I would say so. now, I I still play soccer on a regular basis, so I'm, I'm kicking a ball a lot. So I think currently I would go with myself on that. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, Ryan plays more soccer than I. I do. love that you asked that question because I was going to ask the same one, and we did not plan that ahead of time. <laughs> you complete me, Jeff Santoro. All right. Final question. Final question. In my professional experience, engineering majors make far better investors than finance majors. Of course. Now comparing track records, who's been the better investor measured by returns, Ryan or Brett? Our returns are kind of the same because we owned a lot of the same stuff going into it going into the I'm fund. I'm trying to think of anything. All of, most of our money's all in the fund, so our, our, our returns are tied. But I got to admit, I don't track my returns. So 
Except in the fun. The, the fun gets tracked yeah. every yeah, but per well then Ryan Ryan wins, apparently. Yeah, because I don't I don't track I have not <laughs> tracked my uh returns, which maybe is a bad thing, but also could be a good thing. I don't know. Um I mean, so I think we're gonna have to pass on that one. Cause what what were there any stocks individually, Ryan, that we didn't that one of us owned that another person didn't and it wasn't like a starter position. Maybe like remember? maybe like way back when. Right now in my Roth, I own three stocks. I own Nelnet, Dropbox, and Autodesk. And it's more just been out of laziness. Like, most of the research has gone into the fund. But I think those returns have ended up all right just because of, like, Nelnet makes up the most and it's and it's done fairly well. Yeah, so. my Roth is all almost all Nelnet and then IAC. So, I don't know. IAC has been a pretty big dog. But it's a not as big a position, so very, we'll see. Maybe Ryan edges out there. Very Just monger of both drop. of you. Both laziness to the point of sloth, and diversification is a hedge against ignorance. Love it. Well yeah. done, guys. Well done. Very well done. Jeff, any last words? No, I think we covered it all. We got the kicker question in, so I'm I'm good. To awesome. Go now. <laughs> that was the hardest one. Ryan, Brett, Chit Chat Money, great podcast. Be sure to find these guys anywhere you find podcasts. You got a YouTube channel. They can find you both on Twitter. You have a website as well where you put stuff together. We'll make sure to put every, we'll put all that in the in the show notes for anybody that's looking to get in touch with you. Awesome. Thank you guys. This was fun. Really fun. Thanks for coming on. Thank you guys. Okay, everybody. As always, we love to give our answers to these important questions about investing. But friends, it's up to you to find your own answers. I continue to believe in you every single week. All right, Jeff, we'll see you next time, buddy. See you next time.